0: Brilliant Minds is so much more than a two-day creativity and thought leadership gathering in Stockholm. It's a 365-day, year-round journey. It's the journey of our founders, Spotify's Daniel Eck and Ash Pornori, the journey of our board, team members, the young entrepreneurs we meet year-round whose ideas will change the world. In a small way, it's also my journey, my journey as CEO, as a working mother, as a child of immigrants, as a person who really believes that bringing people together and uplifting each other can make the world better, this podcast is our collective journey. Brilliant Minds is about building collective voice and community everywhere we go and sharing the bold voices in that community who aren't afraid to challenge the way things have always been done in order to create things that have never been imagined before. In this podcast, I hope you join me in cities around the world where I'll exclusively interview some of the most creative people, men and women, young and old, across all sectors, fashion, art, tech, music, science, business, food, people that share the values of brilliant minds like transparency, gender equality, social justice, compassion, and a love of the environment. People that aren't afraid to use their voice for change. Follow me at other great tech events, art summits, media gatherings, where I'll give you an inside scoop on where the future is going and how you can help shape it. Join me in the Brilliant Minds podcast, on the go around the world. I can't wait to hear what you think along the way. Right. So we are here at CSIS with Nina Easton, who is a just fantastic, someone I admired for, for a long time. I actually had many, many friends when I was moving back to Washington who told me, I have to find you. Luckily, my father in law works at CSIS, so it was not too hard, and I scouted you down and we finally made it. Well,
1: I hope you're not disappointed I after am not all that. Disappointed. <laughs> oh my. It's only
0: only elevated after <laughs> okay. we've been talking for a few minutes. Well, it's minutes. an
1: honor to be here. This is really terrific. You're you're doing um real gangbusters with this and all of your other. Thank projects. Thank you, Nina, so, so much. Really and great. it was
0: really what you've been doing um I think it was about a year right when we moved back, we had some event here with the family and one of my father-in-law's young assistants said, like, I've, I've listened to your podcast. You have to, we're so proud of Nina Easton's podcast at CSIS. You know, not many think tanks do podcasts, and this is really cutting edge. And I started listening then, and I loved kind of the emphasis on on women in diplomacy. I mean, it can become a bit canned now, especially with everything that's happened in this election, but you and I both agree, and I think many people agree that women's voices especially in foreign policy especially with the geostrategic situation today are more important than ever. So you have yeah. so much to touch on, but I want to start with kind of present then we'll go backwards and and tell me how did how did the idea for the podcast come from? I mean, you've been interviewing amazing people, you're a renowned journalist yeah. for many years. So give me give me the podcast story.
1: Well, the podcast story grows out of my Fortune story, um, so I'll talk about that a little bit. I'm, as you said, a long time, 35 years in the media, um, and uh, the last 10 years I've been with Fortune magazine, but a big piece of that has been helping organize Fortune Most Powerful Women Mm -hmm. events. So this brings together leading women in business, in philanthropy, in government, in the arts, and we, uh, we have a signature big event in the U.S., but we also have events in the... In London and in Hong Kong, uh, I'm in charge of both of those. I'm uh, chair of Fortune, Most Powerful yes. Women International, and I have to say the just the just that sense of um, energy and community and creativity that comes out of women coming mm. together is truly inspiring to me. My husband always says, "You always come back from those events, <laughs> and you're you're just so high. It's so great." And yeah. I I just so um, doing that. That has sort of, you know, started the itch I've always had for empowering women, although I have to say I'm not keen on the word empowerment. Can we come up with another word? What
0: can we say? I don't know. I we really just, like, struggle. I help,
1: help women, um, you know, pay it forward, I Highlight guess is how or give back, yeah. Whatever. So, um, and I've always had that itch. Um, I was at the Harvard Kennedy School as a fellow, and I and I was assigned um, some graduate students, and yes, I, I love the guys, but I really have loved some of these women students um, who I became a mentor to. So that's by way of background, um, and I love foreign policy. I wrote a column in Fortune magazine about global economics. Mm-hmm. I've been on air uh, on television covering not just on U.S. politics, but foreign policy for you know, 15 years or so. So those are those are things that I have, I have a passion for, and so I came to CSIS with uh, one of the top officials here, Andrew Schwartz, and I came up with an idea, and it was really simply to amplify the voices of women in foreign affairs. And not to dwell on gender, because we don't. We don't dwell on gender at any of our, uh, whether it's, we have live events with top Mm. officials, and we have a podcast, as you very kindly pointed out, on iTunes. Um, But the point is to draw out and find women who are really smart on issues. So our podcast, um, again, iTunes podcast, it's called Smart Women, Smart Power. And it, um, and, you know, it's everything from, what makes Putin tick to Mm. what's next for Brexit to it's just but it's um, talking to women experts on this. Um, Smart women, smart power, of course, CSIS uh, is the uh, I gave birth to the term smart power. (laughs) And the point of that being that there are other, if you look in the arsenal of foreign policy, uh, there's lots of ways to exert power. It's not just military, it's economic, it's, it's social, it's, um, civil institutions. Um, and it's also in this case, women. So one of the things that I've been very keen and aware of, uh, is that women, it's not just about human rights anymore, it's actually an economic issue. And women, um, there's studies now that show if women are included in an economy your GDP actually goes up and uh, it's a point that Secretary of State Hillary Clinton she did, she did a great like job she at that. Ma- yes she made that point I interviewed her at APEC and in, uh, in Hawaii one year and we talked at length about this and she talked about ta- uh, talking it's a case that can be made to leaders much stronger than the human rights case Absolutely. if you make that economic case like hey you know Look at how few women are in your economy. If you bring women into the conversation, and bring women into the the economy, and bring their talent in, Mm. um, it will boost your GDP. And of course, um, Prime Minister Abe in Japan's uh, made that the core of his
0: message. Exactly. Uh,
1: So I think I think there are leaders around the world uh, getting that message, if slowly.
0: I mean, and that's the point I want to kind of also push on a bit. Because it seems like, you know, when I was graduating from college, I mean, we were talking about this and it seemed self-evident. And then, you know, Hillary had economic statecraft. And now, you know, you can't move without fantastic facts coming out of universities about both in politics and in business and in kind of developing situations, why women's voice and women's talent is integral and important Yet it's still not moving very fast. <laughs> um, why aren't the facts resonating better? You know, what needs to be broken down to really get there? Well, I think that's. I think the problem
1: is that's a very complex equation. It has a lot to do with culture. Let's just even stepping back from women on the yep. foreign policy scene. And keep in mind, women, I we've had extraordinary secretaries of state, Absolutely. women, uh, all of whom I've had the honor of interviewing. We've had um, I Madeline, your Madeline Albright. Interview. Just I just listened to it, yes. Yeah, and we had uh, um, Condi Rice. Um, Hillary Clinton. So we have had, we've seen women at the top. We've got tremendous women in world leader positions, Theresa May, Angela Merkel. Um, So it's, we are making progress, visible progress at the top. Um, But I think what you find in organizations as a whole, and I'll take just American business as an example, is it very much starts 50-50 at the bottom of the pyramid. And then as you go up towards the C-suite, mm-hmm. it, gets, it it gets—it is like a pyramid. It gets narrower and narrower, and women start dropping out. And you hear this all the time from companies. How do we keep those women to pipeline, get to the top? Yes. Of the Fortune 500 companies, only 4.8% <laughs> uh, of them have female CEOs. Uh, it's just a handful. And so, again, complex questions about um, – you know, women's leadership style, women's decision to take a different route because they're raising a family, um, discrimination potential. I mean, it's just there's there's been studies on this. There's all sorts of questions, but I think it's um, I think uh, it it's just a complex equation, and it's not going to change that rapidly. Mm. Though it is changing. I mean, I I just know. It's so, Are you it, optimistic
0: it, though? Because I do yeah. meet women that say, "Hey, actually, it was better thirty years ago," or it has really not changed that fast. I was saying this 40 years ago. And that's what I like to, you know, I need some optimism. And I'm an optimist, but um, You know where it was better?
1: It? <laughs> it was better in your world technology 30 I, years ago. And uh, Megan Smith, who's the chief technology officer, My, former yep. of, of the White House, Um you know, it has a, is great at talking about how women were part of Apple, for example. Exactly, you had a great women, interview
0: with her too. Yeah, right?
1: and and w- they they were very much in the tech community, and they're really not. At they the numbers have dropped, Trust which is me, pretty it's something astonishing. Something I'm working on. Yes. Yeah, keep working on I it. I will never stop. I mean, that's. I think it's really important to keep working on it. Um, I was just interviewing some tech women. Uh, last week, in fact, and who are making the point that communication is such a key to mm-hmm. technology, and as companies and clients start adopting and adapting technology. Communication skills come into play. You have to, people are fearful and intimidated by technology. You have to be a good communicator. And women are often good communicators. So there's a great role for women um, who might not even consider themselves techies to get into that space, to get into the digital space and move forward. So I'm totally optimistic. And I know too many, you know, cool, smart, interesting, and global women. I mean, the number of global women your age that I run across who've lived, like you, you know, lived in different countries and grown up in different countries and speak different languages. I mean, it's just extraordinary.
0: Tell me what you think of this. I have this little theory, and my husband doesn't really like to hear it, but uh, I actually think, and it's happening already, we're almost there, but, you know, they say, what's the next wave? What's the next digital wave? We had globalization. We have the internet of everything. I really think it's women. Why? Women are – and people don't always like to generalize this, but bear with me, I will – we are made to change and transform all the time. You know, yeah. we become mother, we become sister, we become caretaker, we have to change all the time. And this is a time where you need to be let go of the ego, you need to be able to be flexible, you need to multitask. I mean, the, you've heard this right. a bit before in the Athena doctrine and different things, but man, do I see it. And I think your point exactly, and, and I, I have the pleasure to work with some founders, and a lot of founders, they are product guys, and I can say guys, they are they are. Science guys, they're engineering guys, and now we're in a time where everybody's expected to be a chief communicator. That's right. The CEO is almost like an ambassador, a chief storyteller. Exactly. We'll get. We'll have to get into that. But but, yeah, I I think
1: women do. um, And again, we don't want to generalize here, but women do have that ability, um, often to multitask and to be more flexible. And you have to be nimble in this Mm -hmm. environment, and you have to be able to change. A lot of it's generational, but I think you're absolutely right that women um, do have that strength and. I would just encourage women, any women who are listening, that it's they shouldn't be intimidated by mm. a technolo- technologically forward world. They shouldn't be intimidated by, by disruption because they are, as you said, I think our DNA is built for it. women. We, we are multitasking and doing a lot of different things all the time.
0: What do you think the millennials could learn from older gen, and vice versa?
1: So, are we going to stop at millennials? Should we go to Gen Z? Yeah, (laughs) exactly,
0: (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Who are now in
1: college? It's so scary. Stop (laughs) talking about millennials soon. What can they learn? Um, I admire their ability to understand the digital world and be part of that. I think what they can learn um, from our generation, and um, I'm 58 years old. Uh, I grew up in the in the 70s. I went to college at the end of the 70s, early 80s. I um, I think that they could learn focus. And depth, and I think that's, that's one of the point. that's one of the biggest uh, things about today's environment that troubles me, particularly in the news media, but all over. I've written books. I've written six thousand word magazine articles. I've done deep dive research. I remember in my twenties, literally going to the Library of Congress to write a book going through the card catalog, you know, going into getting GAO reports and uh, congressional budget reports and congressional testimony and doing deep dives into research. And I was trained that way. And I did another book about the rise of the conservative movement, Gang of Five. That was based on archival research. Thank you. Archival research, you know, 300 interviews, just that um, depth that you don't really get anymore. And people, I know people don't have the appetite for it. Consumers don't necessarily have the appetite for it, but I hope it's not going to become a lost art. I don't think it will because a lot of books... Uh, a lot of books that do incorporate that still sell. It's I mean, coming
0: back. It's coming it's back. I mean, you know, today. books on the
1: founders. Um, you know, the Ron Chernow's book on yeah. Hamilton became a Broadway hit. You know, so then everybody's reading his book on on George Washington, mm. which is fabulous. Mm. I just read um, Boys on the Boat, which is an amazing yeah. narrative story about the Olympic um, team. List, yes. Yeah, the Olympic rowing team out of the University of Washington um, in the in during the Depression and fighting and and competing against Hitler's team. And in the 36 Olympics. <laughs> but the point of it is, it was a tour de force of research. So and, and it was popular and it sold and people bought it. So I think there are still people doing it in book form. I'm troubled by in the news media, how little you find that it really is about Twitter. Uh, it's about clicks, getting clicks. It's about, you know, just being fast and dirty and not necessarily being deep.
0: Are you worried about that, though? Because I think that there, as there is a movement like Gen Z, you know, my they're actually seeking, like they're going off of Facebook. They're seeking to have more information, especially in today's political environment, um, when there's a lot of lack of trust in institutions. So they're looking for trust and belonging somewhere.
1: Um, I, I, I agree that you can get a deep dive read, um, not just from the newspaper, you can get it off of Facebook because somebody sent that the article around. And that's clearly what a lot of people do. I mean, I know my, um, I have two sons in their 20s. and I know that they, they consume a lot of news via social media, but it's links back to newspapers mm-hmm. and serious, um, and serious, even sometimes like academic research. But um, but I, I think there's still a danger in that, in that we are all uh, siloing ourselves into sources of information that we like, that's like us. It's sort of self-selection. We sort of stay in the bubble more. And it's not, uh, I think if you read a newspaper, if you force yourself to read a newspaper from cover to cover, Mm -hmm. which by the way, I do. I get on an airplane and I buy, I I buy all the hardcover newspapers. Um, I buy it, you know, in paper and I sit there like flipping through it on the, on the airplane because you don't, you miss a lot when you don't read it. The whole thing, Um, and I think the same thing with magazines and and obviously with books. But uh, so
0: it's a bit worrisome, though, because the whole tech movement that is also good in so many ways facilitates this, you know, ads. I mean, I I don't see, and when you speak to media people, I mean, that's the way they see that they will get revenue is you really kind of self select, and I'm going to give you what you want, then you'll be happy, Nina, and then you'll buy more and buy more, and so that is a little bit I do get concerned, and I think you know, would I read the newspaper if I wasn't married to someone from another generation if when I went on holiday with my family-in-laws, everybody reads the paper. But would I really read the paper with my – maybe, but
1: I'm not sure. Yeah, you're not sure. I'm not
0: sure, honestly. And and by the
1: way, the self-selection is only going to get worse as we have AI. It's – and it Uh, knows. And everybody – so you have all of these tools trying to figure out what our tastes are and then to reinforce our tastes as – as opposed to helping us expand our tastes. We'll have to
0: keep fighting back. Yes, (laughs) yes. Um, But I do think podcasting is an interesting medium because people, both working mothers especially, I mean, I always point to the female demographic as a great audience, but people that are, You know, commuting, a lot of Europeans will listen to podcasts and will kind of binge on them. Like, I'd listen to five of yours, you know, the past week or when I'm traveling. So I I have some faith. And it's a bit more raw and personal feeling. Yeah, Um, I love podcasts too. And I've always thought, I've always
1: thought even just just... radio in general has tremendous potential. You know, here we have NPR. Exactly. um, And I've always thought that that has such potential to tell stories and to get deep messages across. And so to see it turn into podcasts, which is kind of a form of radio. Radio with um, a playlist, yeah. <laughs> love that, yeah.
0: Love that, yeah.
1: Absolutely. I
0: think part of the solution, as is, is we're discussing, or what I find really interesting about you and people like you is this um, non-siloed effect. I mean, you really sit on the cross-section or bridge of, you know, academia, politics, and business, and I wonder, you know, just slightly going back to women or, or perhaps opening it up, you know, what can the political world learn from the business community and vice versa? I mean, you do all these interviews. You've met so many interesting CEOs and politicians. You know, are the challenges similar? Are they different? Um, and I think in America, we do a bit better with that. In Europe, it's definitely much more siloed. Like, there's much more severe lines between these different sectors but as someone that you know you do have such a rich base of, of knowledge in this way
1: I was I'm glad you brought that up because I actually I've covered elections in this country for a couple of decades. I've been um, particularly in the past you know 10, 12, 14 years I've covered elections out of Washington and Washington News. And been very focused on what's going on in Washington, which can be really depressing <laughs> and incredibly dysfunctional. It's not funny. I mean, it's like it's, I, like, I know. it's like I'm groundhog laughing I've been crying. Day. I mean, a it's lot. like yeah. it's, it's like Groundhog Day. Like even before this election, there was the whole the the budget crises and the uh, the budget crises and the um, back that up. Even before this election, there were uh, the budget crises and we would government shutdowns and just and just par- paralysis. Yeah. And it really is like Groundhog Day, and there's no ability to find common ground, and there's a there's a negativity. Step outside that, which I'm able to do at our Fortune conferences. Mm-hmm. Whether it's we have this brain, something called Brainstorm Tech, which is high tech people. We have our women's conferences. I'm um, co-chair of something called the Fortune Global Forum, mm-hmm. and there's so much energy, innovation, and optimism in business. Absolutely. Let me give you one example. Last November, as the lead co-chair for the Fortune Global Forum, I helped bring uh, a select group of global CEOs to the Vatican. And these that was CEOs, fantastic. I followed is, that,
0: and I knew people that went there. It was so sorry to interrupt, but it was uplifting great.
1: Uplifting because these CEOs were tasked with coming up with a social compact to create a more inclusive global economy, which is what Pope Francis has been calling for, as we all know. And they were tasked with coming up with the details of a basically a promise to this pope that the private sector will move in this direction. We sat in rooms divided by topic, energy, the environment, global health, food and water, with these very big-name CEOs mm. worth a lot of money running huge companies. There were no handlers in the room. We only had research experts, like the head of the Rockefeller mm-hmm. Foundation, for example, was in my one of my groups. And um, they they sat there and they crafted these promises. We presented them to the Pope. We met with the Pope personally. And to watch these CEOs be so moved and so um, dedicated Humble. to really, you know, not just making a profit, but making the world a better place, knowing that they have a big footprint outside um, the U.S. and the West and that they want to engage those communities locally in developing nations, for example, and they want to actually be more of a force for good, You just that's not something you hear if you sit here in the Washington bubble.
0: I think you've made an excellent point. And the only reason I can kind of, and not to get political at all, because I think this is actually above politics, I think institutions are really suffering, including the church, which is why this pope, and I mean, I'm a raised Catholic, has been Incredible, and it's kind of brought me back because of what he's been doing. But he's brought
1: a lot of people back, definitely.
0: But I do feel if I wasn't so engaged in the business community, especially kind of the entrepreneurial community, which is solutions focused, mm-hmm. which is like, I can do it no matter what odds, it's me against the establishment, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, this, this grit right. there, I would be much more depressed. But it's I interesting, mean, because we see this, like, when we were, um, my husband and I were at the embassy, we started this businessman statesman series we launched. We would have, like, Mukhtar um, Kent, but also Blake McCoskey, and Jeff Immel, and have groups of, you know, politicians, and, and people really talking about these issues. And that's when it dawned, I mean, I was like 26, 27 at the time, that this is where I really believe the business community will have to not necessarily replace but really push right. government. Because, as you said, can you imagine being a diplomatic couple and we had to explain a government shutdown right. in Sweden where it's like a know. consensus-oriented society? You right. know? It was unbelievable. I think that Congress was the do-nothing I – mean, worse – lack of legislation as compared to the do-nothing Congress of like 1921. I mean, it was just awful and continues to be that way. And
1: what I always like to say is in Silicon Valley, they talk about dynamic disruption. In Washington, in Congress, we can talk about dynamic dysfunction.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nina, where is this going? I mean, can you – I have a big audience in Europe, so it's very – and, you know, Europeans are – Whatever party you're from, they're they to be mystified by Trump and what's happening in America. You couldn't have more polar opposite um, right. trajectory than than President Obama. Um, how do you explain what's going on? Is well, our system broken? First of all, I, I, I would I would
1: I like to say back to the Europeans. yes yeah. um, they, yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> so, they have their own mess. Yeah, so they're their own mess. <laughs> yeah, so I think um, I, I think a lot of the same populist nationalist forces are at work here that are at work in Europe. And I think we're going to see it in future elections in Europe, by the way. So I, th- you right. You know, I, it's not something that's just about the United States. Um, what's happening here? I mean, uh, we we have a situation where um, a lot of people have been left behind in this economy, and I think that was very much a force behind um, Trump's mm. election. Uh, it's. I like to remind people he won by a football stadium of people across three states in the Electoral College, and um, and Hillary Clinton won by three million votes. And I don't say that as a partisan. I say that simply to make it. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. Um, you know, swing too far one way or the other. Um, this country is a couple of things. It's incredibly diverse. The demographics are changing in favor of diversity. It's, you know, the the millennials are the largest largest living generation. And it's a huge – it continues to be a huge force in this country. So you can't write that off. But existing side by side with that is this um, more white, uh, less college-educated, left-behind population from this economy. And it's not just – I've seen some studies that show it's not just, a, it's not just about the, the economics or the income. It's also about um, communities that have just been hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's, there's things like high rates of drug addiction, yeah. high mortality rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those kinds of communities mm-hmm. have been not helped by globalization – But I also think the case should and needs to be made that globalization is not, hasn't been just a bad thing for this country, it's been mostly a good thing, and that it's risen billions, it's raised billions of people around the world out of poverty, but it's also created lanes of trade. Mm. And there's some 60 million jobs in this country that are connected to trade. And that's a message we don't hear. And by the way, you know, we talk about Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton took on a lot of the Bernie Sanders message and was not uh, was not extolling free trade. So the TPP, for example, would have she would have tabled that. Now her allies argue that they would have renegotiated pieces of it and put it back on the table. Nevertheless, um, there's a big uh, chunk of this country, both left and right, that's incredibly skeptical about trade. But the case hasn't been made. they don't
0: understand it, The
1: case hasn't been made. I mean, we are an
0: exporting nation. So is this a particularly, would you say, unique moment? Has this happened for? Or is this cyclical and maybe people are getting overly dramatic about it? Dramatic is not the right word um, because it is a time of anxiety. But you hear some saying, look, this happens. It happens in history. It's an economic downturn. Yeah, just the political feeling, the populism everywhere. Or I think, is this unique I think it, and we should be worried?
1: I think it's unique in that I don't think we've ever seen a president like President Trump. This is something, um, you know, when we talk about disruption, mm-hmm. disruptive forces out there in, in the economy, this is a, a disruption to, to Washington that I don't think we've encountered in modern times. I mean, certainly going back historically. So, yeah, it's. Um, I think it's very significant and very distinctive. And it has a lot of people rattled. I think that's fair to say. Uh, it's rattled a lot of people.
0: I want to move to a topic we both love, which is entrepreneurship. Okay. So, a little bit away from politics, closer to entrepreneurship. You've recently kind of taken a new, exciting entrepreneurial venture with your partner, Patty Sellers. And, you know, I always say, as, as a child of two immigrants um, from Eastern Europe, I grew up in Chicago. From a young age, it's not just because I landed in Sweden, and that's a big tech place, but I always saw entrepreneurship as a form of empowerment. I mean, the immigrants in America integrated because of entrepreneurship, and my parents worked full time jobs, were engaged in politics, and were starting companies and businesses and buying real estate, and it was really amazing. And you know, I've always seen now. I think we're at a stage where we hear these amazing statistics of because of the internet and because because we have digitalization, women can work from home or they can do it on flexible timing. You see this surge of, of female entrepreneurs. Yeah. I mean, women are starting businesses at twice the rate of men. And I think if I'm correct, the statistics prove that female run businesses actually survived much better through the recession. They were leaner, they were kind of more fiscally responsible. So I say all that with the vein that you are in 2016, so last year, mm-hmm. started a new venture kind of focused around this concept of storytelling, which I want to talk a little bit more about. But tell me about that and why you decided to do it and how's it going? Well, thanks for that intro on yeah. it. Um, <laughs> Yes, we, uh,
1: after 35 years uh, as news media personalities, my fo- fellow f- uh, former senior editor at Fortune, Patty Sellers, and I started Sellers Easton Media. Um, and by the way, just a, a note to women. So we were looking at names for our com- company and uh, we ran into some... Trademark issues on some names, and um, so we finally thought, let's just name it after ourselves. All the men said, "Yes, that's what you need to do." <laughs> they were the ones who were boosters for that. So we thought it was I sort know. of a we thought it was just a point of power to name it after ourselves. What we are is a private storytelling company um, designed to capture the legacies of people who have made an impact, Mm. uh, whether in business, philanthropy, and so on. And the idea is that there's so many incredible stories out there about people who have helped build this country and other countries that aren't told. So, um, you know, you might, we we just saw the Warren Buffett documentary Mm -hmm. on HBO. Well, not everybody's Warren Buffett and going to have a big documentary made on him. Nevertheless, there are incredible there are people who've Absolutely. built institutions. And as my partner likes to say, Patty likes to say, nobody was born great. I yeah. mean they did they built enterprises against headwinds, against doubters. It wasn't easy. They might have gone bankrupt. They might have to immigrate here. Whatever. Whatever your story is, it's an incredible story. Um, there are incredible stories out there to be told by leaders, by people who've really made an impact. And so we um, we craft um, Bio, small, short bio documentaries based on our interviews and uh, put it together in a with B roll and photos and all in a in a um, in a nice film that you can either have live online so that Mm. it's searchable by historians as well as your grandkids. So you actually you, you might have played a role in some piece in history and no one knows that about you and you know it's findable or you might just want it for your your children, your grandchildren and and you might be very private but you want to pass down that not only your legacy but life lessons to the next generation. So we do that both in film form and we do it we do an illustrated memoir as well where we'll write a piece. We don't do full-fledged autobiographies but we'll do like a 10,000 word beautifully reported piece with um in a book, a uh, self-published book with photos and so forth. So it's been um, that's cool. It's been a very cool venture. Um, we, I think, having been around these women at our Fortune conferences, who run their businesses and take risks, Um, we were like, why not us at this period in our lives? I felt like there's another chapter left in my life after all these years in the media.
0: According to Google, apparently, you know, we'll all be living to 200 very soon. Right.
1: But our brains won't. Yeah,
0: we'll we'll have some kind of half function. So we'll see. (laughs) What has been the best part of running your own company and what's the hardest? Because sometimes it's easy. Like I, I always laugh, but, you know, kind of People will say, oh, you should work from working from home or working for yourself. That's great. Yeah. It's not easy either way, you know. And so there's pros and cons.
1: So the best – I think the best part is it is being your own boss, honestly. But your boss is also your client, so you're never (laughs) never your own boss. Um, I liked – the best part is having a partner that I trust, uh, that I've come to appreciate on so many levels – and we're both strong personalities. Mm. I mean, it's mm. you know, it, it wasn't necessarily going to be ideal, but I think we've been in all these situations since we opened, uh, been about nine months now, um, and uh, y- you know, faced a lot of challenges together, and really appreciate each other's strengths and weaknesses. So I really, um, that's really fun. The challenge, um, the challenge is we are doing something completely new. Mm. It's not It's not like something that's out there and people say, oh, I see, you know, so-and-so did this. Hmm. Um, I need it too. You kind of – people – you have to convince people of the need Absolutely. even though we know that there is a need um, and we believe that people should be capturing and preserving their legacies and passing them on. But because it's – we're in a totally new sphere of mm-hmm. offerings, um, it's just – it's a new – Uh, we're carving new ground, and that's truly a challenge, yeah.
0: Are women good at telling their own stories? And are we even kind of allowed to? Or is that promoting yourself too much? (laughs) So
1: I don't think they are good at telling their own stories. And I've had um, CEOs say things like, don't be that forgettable woman at the table taking notes. Uh, You know, women do need to lean forward in their image as much as anything in there. And one of the things we've started are essentially video resumes for women who want to get on boards or want to become CEOs because, well, first of all, resumes are yesterday's news, right? In the digital age who like is going to like, you know, plow through a resume. But a video, I think, enables if it's done at with the right hands, like because we've interviewed so many people on stage and in print and on video, we know how to get people's stories out. We help them get them out. So I think if we, we help people tell their story on film and then you cut that down to kind of like a video resume, a mm-hmm. short video resume, I think it, it's very compelling. And it's been interesting because women do need help doing that. And it's, Absolutely. it's so
0: hard because I don't want to put the onus on us. I will say, my God, the shit that rains down on me sometimes like don't don't you know cuz I, I will be self-effacing like don't cut yourself down in a speech and make fun of yourself but then you know you're really promoting yourself too much don't be high don't be low yeah. i mean it's i think Cheryl Sandberg wrote this like with Adam Grant you know about a year ago it's a it's a dance it's lean it in lean dance. out lean side you know that's exactly right and i think it is a dance it's exhausting sometimes
1: and i think the other thing that has come up in conversations about this is that should a woman show vulnerability and people, exactly. we're all told now in storytelling, show vulnerability, show authenticity. And I had a question from an audience, as one woman described this incredibly awful period she had with her child. And she just went through, it was so awful. She went through trauma. And I said, You should talk about it. But she didn't want to talk about it because she didn't want to look like it was affecting her work. These, like you say, that's a dance. That's very hard mm. to calculate how much of yourself you show and how much you don't show. Uh, and I think we're still working our way through it. But I think it's good to for women to show some vulnerability if they want to help other women up along the way. Uh, probably it's not good to show vulnerability to people who might be hiring you. But if, if you're in a setting where there's young women looking – younger mm-hmm. women looking up to you, I think it's really good to show that vulnerability and let them know that you have faced that
0: as well. I think it's, it's – you know, I want to poke further into this because I think it's definitely something you see that's, you know, beyond prevalent in D.C., especially in my, – my sister-in-law, Mika, does a lot of these panels and things. And we used to laugh, like, for years. Like, you'd get four women and they're perfect they're perfect, they rose very easily, they're in Congress, they have 17 kids, and they do it perfectly. Right. Nothing. And, you know, Mika's total other extreme, and so am I. We always talk about, like, oh, my God, you know, when I fainted here, or when, you know, my child did this. And yeah. usually, I think almost always it works to be authentic. But you do have to be careful, because you do get that, you like, do. she's hysterical. Right. <laughs> she's neurotic. I think you that's know? exactly right. <laughs> so I guess I, I come back to it and say, you know, if you were to advise, you, you answered this a bit already, but... First, how would you advise young women also? But how do you kind of uh, regulate regulate it yourself? Do you talk about your failures? Um, do you talk about your weaknesses publicly? Oh, I have done. <laughs> I know I, I can tell. This is why. <laughs>
1: uh, I certainly do. I talk about them with my, you know, with trusted people, mm. with younger women. Uh, I love being around students. and mm. And one of the things that I always say – and it sounds like you use a four-letter word. You, you go for it. Are you serious? Oh yeah, this is so. A I was in this. Yeah, so I was in a. Uh, I was, in a uh, setting at Harvard with uh, this room full of seventy William wim- oh. I was in this room full of women at Harvard, seventy women sort of hanging off the rafters, wanting to know jam-packed room. It was myself and another woman, and they wanted to. Uh, they basically wanted to know that path. That path, yes. especially since they're at Harvard, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they want to know that path to success. Like they, you're supposed to draw the line for them, and I said to them, "You know what? The main thing to know: shit happens." <laughs> yeah. And you know, in my case, I went through a grueling divorce, mm. uh, really turned upended my life, yeah. and that was a difficult moment, but it changed me, I got over it, I got up, I dusted myself off, and I moved on. And I had two little kids at the time, Mm. it wasn't easy. And so you can't regulate everything in your life. And then the other thing that's happened on a more recent level is the news media has been completely disrupted. Mm. And the life, if you had asked me 10 or 12 or 15 years ago, what I would be doing, I'd say, well, I'd probably still be doing TV commentary, I'd be doing these big, beautiful cover stories. in in Fortune, I'd be writing a column. And there's no appetite for those kinds of Mm. writings anymore. So it's, uh, you've got to be able, you've got to be nimble. My advice to women is to be nimble, to change with the times, and to know that your path is not going to be set in stone. It's going to change, take advantage of the opportunities, be willing to take Mm. a risk. Uh, It'll all work out in the end.
0: What's your secret? Why are you, I hate that question sometimes, but what are the set of decisions or the set of forks in the road that have gotten you to where you are? And, you know, you may not want to say, but I can say, you know, as an extremely, you're extremely successful, kind of well-known journalist, activist, ever, you know, very, very successful woman. Um, What do you think either about your own personality or about kind of your life arc got you to this place where we're sitting right now? Well, I'll,
1: I'll actually borrow what Madeleine Albright said to me last week, which is um, obviously, I'm no Madeleine Albright, but um I work really hard. Mm-hmm. and she said i it's what she said the same thing. I work really hard. Uh, I read a lot mm. in my profession. i um you know it's important as it the level of journalist I was? I mean, you you need to read a lot. um and i uh, I prepare and you know, I, I have
0: a vision for where I want to go. I mean, you're very busy. So, as I as I say, <laughs> rattle your ear off here. Um, I'm going to turn it around on you as you work on people's legacies and storytelling. What do you want yours to be?
1: Well, I would love to be known as somebody who who told great stories. And I don't just mean my company. I mean as a as a author and a magazine writer and a journalist. I would like to be known as somebody who um, told great stories that impacted other people's lives, um, who brought uh, – I, I always thought of myself as a journalist as somebody who challenged conventional wisdom. I never just said the, what you expected mm-hmm. to say. I, I always challenged conventional wisdom. Um, so I, I guess I want to be known for that. And then I want to be known for – Paying it forward with mm. women. Um, when I retire, I want to be teaching girls in a in a high school or young women in a college in a place where the windows aren't open to the world, and you can actually and I can open that window to them because I've I've watched that process, mm. and there's nothing more fulfilling than seeing a young woman or a teenage girl open that window and see that she has opportunity ahead of her that she didn't see before.
0: Thank you so much, Nina. You're fantastic. And I can say this on behalf of many women, thank you for the work you do. Oh, thank you. It's been fabulous to be here. Good luck.